Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Angular Insights. My co-host, Gil, and I are thrilled to be back after a short summer break. We have a very special episode for you today. Ben Braverman, Chief Customer Officer at Flexport, will be talking about crafting the right approach to scaling sales. We're also doing something brand new where we'll have a live sales clinic where three early stage startup CEOs, Vicky from Crux OCM, Jonathan from CanDo and Xenia from Planable will have a conversation with Ben discussing sales questions relevant to the sales challenges and opportunities they're currently grappling with. For the session format, we will introduce Ben and the founders momentarily. We'll then do the sales clinic. And with that, Gil, take it away. Well, thanks, Anne. And thanks, thanks Ben, so much for doing this. And thanks, Vicky, Jonathan, and Xenia. So Ben is Chief Customer Officer at Flexport, which was founded in 2013 as a digital freight forwarder and is doing $1.7 billion of revenue, according to Wikipedia, at least. Ben spearheads Flexport's customer engagement model and industry-leading customer experience. In leadership roles before Flexport, Ben helped drive two high-growth companies to successful acquisitions, URX, which was acquired by Pinterest, and HayZap, which was, was acquired by Fiverr. And I've gotten to know Ben over the past year or two as an advisor and a friend, and we've looked at some companies together, and he's totally awesome. And so we thought it'd be really fun to get his perspective on some sales issues and sales challenges. So, hey, Ben, thanks for doing this. We have um, three Angular CEOs, Angular portfolio companies um, on the call. I just want to point out that what's cool is that two of them are women and the three of them are spread across. I'm sitting in London, Anne sitting in New York, Ben sitting in Wyoming, Vicky sitting in somewhere in the woods of Northern Canada. I can't figure out where it is. Jonathan's in the <laughs> Bay Area, but the company is a London and, and West Coast company. Zenia is in Bucharest and that company is a Moldova and Romanian company. So in sort of classic Angular fashion, it's a super international call and we're very excited by that. So without further ado, let me let Vicky and then Jonathan and then Zenia introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Vicky. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Prex OCM. So we actually work in control rooms for heavy industrial operations. So if you think of like oil pipelines, their first target market, folks are actually operating these assets currently right now by a checklist, rules of thumb and paper procedures. So they're issuing thousands of set, co- set point commands, hundreds of alarms um, and dozens of phone calls. So we call it with your robotic industrial process automation. So it's a nod to RPA. Given that we are automating human workflows, it's just that we're automating human workflows with respect to heavy industrial equipment. And, and there's additional complexities around that with respect to the mathematical modeling and uh, just the, the physical properties of these assets. The results of what we do and why it's important, we can get about 45% reduction in, in emissions and environmental impacts and 99% reduction in the human factors. So as your people are interacting with the assets, um, so you think pilots and planes have autopilot, you're not going to want to get in a plane without autopilot software because we wouldn't think it's safe anymore. Yet these heavy industrial assets are still operated with people. So, so very heavy focus on automating that from a safety perspective. We're also showing increased utilization of these heavy industrial assets. So our first target market being pipelines, which then um, increases revenue for our first early customers. It took the control room operator quite some time to get up to full rate, about an hour and 17 minutes total. We were able to do it 46 minutes, which makes us uh, increase the, the throughput. 
Great. I'm Jonathan, co-founder of CanDo. We make UI editing software. So if you want to improve a website or web app and you don't have a lot of developer talent or they're working on other important road mapping projects, you can use us to take a prefab component, design it in an editor a little bit like Canva and then add it into the page. So let's just take an example company like MailChimp. One thing that they could do is if they wanted to add a new, say, announcement bar or a new onboarding checklist, they could go ahead and grab one of our prefab templates and actually just chuck it into the page. So find an available div, and then the page will responsibly resize around that new element. The cool thing is that you can actually segment it at certain sets of users who are all looking the same product, but we can all have very different user experiences. And this is really a step change in kind of how we think about how B2B software ought to work. And the fact that all of us can have very different user experiences based on our user journey, based on what we're paying for, based on who we are. And yeah, we'd love to hear more about you and Planable. Awesome. Okay, so Planable is a collaboration tool for content marketers. Before Planable, I actually had a social media marketing agency. So when I was building content for my clients and wanted to collaborate internally, but also to get approvals from them, we were building all of that content in a spreadsheet. We were discussing it in never-ending email threads. So it was a lot of mishmash of tools that were involved in the entire process from idea of a content piece and until delivery and publishing. So it's all happening in very archaic tools. So what Planable does is that it brings an entire content marketing team in one single place where they can build content, but not just build it, but actually prototype it. So have mockups that show a pixel perfect preview of how the content is actually going to look like on the channels themselves. So Planable is very destination aware. It gives you previews. You can collaborate in real time with the entire team. It covers content calendars, media asset governance, approvals, all of that good stuff that happens in the backstage before content is actually live. So think of Planable kind of like Figma for content marketing. That's where we are at the moment. And we're working with both agencies like McCann and WPP, but also with brands like Hyundai or Christian Louboutin to help them speed up their content production. Amazing. Very cool. So without further ado, let's jump into the sales clinic. Can I ask a question yeah, first for, of the three? And by the way, thank all three of you, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and teaching us about your businesses. Before we start, I think it's always helpful to like understand who the who is. Would you mind sharing who your ideal customer looks like? What is a Halo brand for you? Like when, when your team is, is conceiving of the ideal customer that you're targeting, who should they be picturing? Where do they sit in the org? How do they make the decision? Whatever you can share about the buyer would be super helpful. Yeah, so our, our buyer, we actually sell into operations inside of right now, large oil and gas companies. So that's our, our first target market. Heavy industrial later is, is obviously where we want to expand to. So the VP operations is typically our who's signing the check. Our end user is actually control room operator. And then influencers are all the many multitudes of engineers. Yeah, we have had a little bit more fun with this question. So uh, I think our our best ICPs are the ones who want to improve the user experience of a B2B software application. Uh, they have multiple different types of users or products. Um, they're usually in a, a product manager role or they're in like a growth type role or maybe lifecycle marketing who's been given the wherewithal to improve activation. And they need to get buy-in from the engineering team. And then they often need to get content from like content team to make it work. Cool. And our best customers are probably, I'd say, we call them strivers. Maybe they're not the best. Maybe they don't have a huge engineering team working on this all the time. Um, so they're looking to tools like us to help them get a leapfrog on, on what they had before. So, 
Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like Vicky, her world's a little simpler. Your world, it's a little bit more of a, of a collaborative sale. Very cool. Thank yeah. Thank, thank you for also teaching me. So we have three uh, big and important uh, ICPs. First of all, it's the agencies up to 100 people, the owners or someone in a management uh, position and agencies that do specifically content, social, digital marketing. And then two types of brands, the scale-ups that invest quite a lot in digital marketing and they're on the consumer side. So it needs to be a consumer brand, not necessarily a B2B that doesn't work uh, too well. And then brands with uh, multiple regions or with multiple sub brands in order to have a lot of content and a lot of people involved. Being a collaboration product, you need a lot of people to be involved in the process for, for this to really bring a lot of value. And is it typically the content team themselves that are bringing you in or is it typically someone who, who oversees content as, as a set of functions they they out? Bottom up, yeah. It's usually someone in the content team. And then we we get to talk to the decision maker being someone, director of content, director of social, usually not the CMO level, so still in the head of social, head of content area. Amazing. Okay, that gives me so much more context and I, I think the audience as well. Thank you all so much. Thanks. Yeah, so Ben, we've had some significant early product market fit with our first offering into oil pipelines. Our product is now catching up. We did have to slow down a little bit to give products some time to catch up. So Adam and I did back off on outbound and follow-ups. But uh, we have seen because of that back off, we've seen a bit of a, a bit of a decline because of our slower marketing and our slower follow-ups. What do you recommend we do to keep demand high in the meantime while we're still <laughs> catching product all the way up to this demand? Yeah, I mean, I'm a terrible person to ask this question to because if you ask anyone who was on the Flexport engineering team from 2014 to 2018, they would use a lot of profanity when discussing this topic. Even if you look at Flexport today, our business is way ahead of, of the product. And the product is great, but the business is just really, really big. And I think that's sort of a decision you make at some point that you're just going to do this deal with the devil, that you're always going to be behind the scale of the business to some degree. It will slow you down in the future. It will compress your margins at some point in the future. But I do think like by definition, startups are high growth. And so even if you have to, even if you have to do a lot of ugly, unscalable things uh, in service of the goal, I do think it's just so dangerous and painful to slow down growth uh, that I, I would figure out some way to keep running the cycles, even if you had to say, okay, and we're launching three months out, we're launching four months out. But when, when you stop the machine, is like it's just real work to get the thing going again. And I, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know right now. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've talked about them before, but yeah, we've definitely like, um, because we've slowed down our, instead of doing faults every two weeks, we're doing them like every month <laughs> or every like two yeah. months. So, so I think we're going to have to start picking them back up again. I'll jump into to the next one. So we're working to accelerate our late stage pipeline customers into errors fast as possible because we have an upfront install because we work on inf uh, critical infrastructures. So we actually have to commission control systems. So we do have an NRE component. So what do you recommend in terms of like us structuring these contracts with like such an old legacy industry to actually get them to convert or to, to be into air or faster, despite the fact that they're super used to like big consulting contracts or like what they call like upfront capital capitalization contracts? Like, I guess, have you seen that in Flexport and, and what do you recommend we do to start bringing that? As forward as no, you're in such a unique position where you have this amazing product where like, if you don't know, Crocs, like every, all those stats Vicky gave, they're, they're real. And she really does make these assets dramatically more productive. They go up, they go live faster. They're safer. 
Um, so there's all these like incredible incentives for these companies to use the, the product. To clarify her question, what she what she's running into is a buyer who prefers rather than buying software on a recurring yeah. basis like we, like we were all used to doing, they want to give her this like project fee, which may be the equivalent of like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year. And then they want to minimize the recurring fee because that's just not how their budgets are structured. That's not how they're used to buying things. They're used to buying big, extensive things once, and that's what their that's what their whole organization is sort of structured to do well. And they're not good at buying software. I think this is like a you know, super unique challenge to Vicky. I've never seen another company that has like such a crazy product market fit for this unique challenge with how the customer wants to buy. And if it were me, I'd be super tempted to find one or two or three Halo brands that were willing to go on that journey with me, even if it meant that my total net on the customer was lower. Like getting getting people off this cycle of buying one time and and onto a cycle of buying recurring, especially when you sell a product that offers recurring value and that you're updating yeah. constantly. Uh, to to me, it seems even if you have to dramatically lower the amount of total spend, as painful as it is, get a few folks who are willing to go on the journey with you. And I think that's what you've been doing, right? Like, it, that's, yeah. and that's why you've been so close with with the few the few few logos that I know you're very close with because you're yeah. trying to get them as proof points. Yeah, yeah, and and one of our logos is public with us, Philips sixty six in in the U.S. And yeah, that's absolutely what they're comfortable with the ARR. <laughs> yeah, and and it, once once someone of of that level of authority in the market is say, yeah, we we understand that if you want to buy modern software, you have to buy it in a modern way. I think other people will follow. So much of our our growth at Flexport, it was just based around getting one, at every stage in the journey. It was let's get one or two Halo brands that will work in the way you want them to work, which in our cases, use Flexport as a single source of truth, which they were really opposed to doing. In our industry, we had to convince people not to buy from multiple freight forwarders and instead just single source from us. The big incentive we have, which I think is similar to your incentive, is we just make the whole business run better and we give you this one platform to control it all. The, you know, the, the sort of give we have to get from our customer is instead of buying from five forwarders, now you got to buy from one. And we, we've just got to be a good enough forwarder that that's an okay bargain. But yeah, in every situation, we were running these Halo customers close to break even, or in some cases, even at a slight loss at the beginning of the relationship because we felt like they were so important in their industry. Uh, and that's exactly the playbook that, that you're running, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that that is exactly what we're doing. I thought that'd be, uh, that input specifically would be super interesting to other folks because I know we've worked with you lots on that and it has been really valuable to us. So yeah, I thought other folks would definitely want to hear about that. So with regards to these older industries and in, in communicating, like exactly what we talked about, right? Like the contract structures are not, like it's not this beautiful MRR <laughs> that we can just then communicate to VCs. I'd love to hear your recommendations around when we go to do fundraising, like how do we actually communicate? Just, just for, for the record, Vicky, some VCs do understand it. Yes, yeah, sorry, this one right here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Gil understood it very well, even before we had first big Halo customers. So uh, yeah, kudos to Gil. Um, with the Series 8 folks and stuff, any recommendations on how to to better communicate that? Because that's definitely something I've been feeling the pain on. Yeah, I, I it's interesting. Like I, I saw a pitch yesterday for a company that if you look at the actual net they're generating, it's almost zero. And if the company's valued at a billion dollars just based on the scale of transaction volume. Uh, and they're rightly so. Like they, they, but they told a very crisp, simple story that a not that smart person being me could understand in 35 minutes. And I think one of, one of your challenges is like your business is so complicated. You're selling into a stakeholder that is like a true domain expert. Like this person has spent 30 years in their industry. It's just a unique, it's a unique story to then also explain to a VC why the sales cycles take what they do, 
why you have to do this POC, why you have to run it. In, in Vicky's case, she has to install her software in a test environment first, prove that it does all the things she said it's going to do before they'll actually put it on the real asset. Because these assets are worth $100 million. Like before you put a new control system on top of it, you want to be pretty sure it's not going to... Yeah, wait, <laughs> sorry, billions. Sorry, there were billions of dollars. Before you put a new control system on top of it, you want to be pretty sure it's not going to do things you're not expecting. And I think it, it, all of that is just, it's a lot of information for a VC to, to grasp. So it, like in, in your case, like, I think having VCs like Gil or like our friend Kane, who are just willing to take the time to, to go with, to go deep with you and actually understand, okay, this is a sales cycle. It's going to take this long, but the deal sizes are going to be eight figures. Uh, so it's a journey worth going on. I don't know that there's any way you can hack that. Like, I don't know that you're going to get a VC that's used to looking at super simple, super simple, pure SaaS businesses that sell into a traditional, in the case of like China, there's any business that are much simpler to understand and sell into a stakeholder VCs tend to know personally. Uh, like yeah. no VC knows a VP of ops at Pembina, whereas they're going to know tons of PMs that Jonathan and Denya are selling into. So it's, or, 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 or project leaders that Denya's selling into. It's just like a very different sale. I, I think you're, you know, in, in your case, it's, it's doubling down on the relationships you have. And then like your, your numbers will speak for themselves, right? Like your deal sizes are large enough that as they mature, eventually the ARR just becomes sort of something that people can't ignore, right? Something that happens, yeah. And then for the other founders on the call who are listening, Kane's with Root Ventures, who also dug in to understand our super complex <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, to, yeah. Um, K- K- Kane and Gil, both amazingly intellectual VCs that are willing to do way more work and I think take bigger swings than all some other folks. But yeah, I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you your wine bottle later. But like, <laughs> what I, I actually wanted to expand one of Vicky's questions and maybe apply it to it more generally. Like she's talking about like how found, like certain customers want to buy in a certain way, right? You have a benefit that they want, but they want to buy it in a certain way. And I think for a lot of founders, even very early stage founders, even founders that are not necessarily selling to heavy industry like Vicky is, like, how much energy should a founder spend on the benefit versus not only convince you of the benefit, but then trying to shoehorn you into a process that looks good for my VCs versus just let you want to buy it this way. I'll just sell it to you that way. Right. Isn't that a trade-off that like, cause my advice would be for early stage, just sell it the way they want to buy it. Don't yeah. try to teach them new tricks, just prove the value prop. Right. But you sort of said, actually, you should try to pull them over the line and try to get them to buy into the, the model. Yeah, I think the most nuanced, realistic answer is that Flexport did a little bit of both. The The give that we had was originally we thought we were going to be able to simplify the way people bought logistics. We thought we were going to be able to give people one price uh, as a quote instead of these crazy quotes today, which are 12 lines that sum up to a total that may or may not be accurate, that may or may not be what you're actually invoiced. We thought we were going to be able to just give people, here's a one line price that bundles all these services together. Isn't that a more rational way to buy? Uh, and we were dead wrong. Like the every single buyer in our industry told us, we don't want to buy that way. We're professionals. Give us the quote broken down in this really complicated format that seems like way too much detail. That's what we prefer. And so we as Flexport had to just embrace that. Even today, we still give people these quotes that are sort of horrifying looking because that's what the industry prefers. Like they, they don't want to buy, a, like they don't want to give Flexport $5 per piece. They want to know, okay, we're paying this much per container. We're paying this much per customs clearance. We're paying this much in customs duty. They want to see it all broken down. They don't want us to abstract it at all. Uh, and that was something we were really wrong about. But I think the thing that we were pretty insistent on was that we were going to provide enough value that they were going to do something they historically hadn't done, which is single source their logistics. That was sort of the one thing that we were like, okay, that, this is our hill to die on. Because if, 
if you don't get the customer in our case to use Flexport almost exclusively, the whole value prop sort of disintegrates where rather than having all their shipments in one place, their whole team on one platform, they sort of have half their company in Flexport and half their company in email. And the net result is like, then there really isn't a single source of truth. The supply chain hasn't become searchable. There's all these things that are dramatically worse about being a Flexport customer if you are buying us as a set of five forwarders versus just using us as your logistics partner. And that was something that like the industry didn't necessarily want at all. Like our customer was trained buy from multiple vendors, always have a backup, constantly be beating these guys against each other for a lower price. That was sort of how our industry was taught to operate. And we really spent years building up enough trust with our customers that we could say, look, you're welcome to, we're happy to participate in your bid every year. And to Gil's point, like, that's our give. Like we still submit this spreadsheet to our customers every year where we, we, we give them a price by lane. It all happens offline. We compete against other forwarders to make sure we're right competitively. But ultimately, like the bargain we've set with our customer is we're going to go through this ritual with you, but ultimately you're going to do your best to buy everything from us and keep all the, and keep all the, the information in one place because it's good for you. It's good for us. And that was sort of like, it took years to get people comfortable with this idea that they had redundancy with Flexport as their single vendor. But if we hadn't really made that a, a core focus, I don't know that we ever would be as big as we are now. But like, yeah, to your point, the actual structure of how we submit the prices, how we invoice our customers, it's the legacy way. We were, we were, we've been totally unable to change it. Right. Yeah. And I think like for us too, to add to that, because we're going into critical infrastructure control systems and those typically only get changed out 10 to 15 years we actually have a, a time window of stickiness to start pushing into that more modern contract structure regardless and, and start making it like training. We have time to train the customer. <laughs> yeah, well, and in, and in your case, is there a way that you can get fair value without converting these customers to ARR at some point? Like, g- given that you are yeah. providing recurring value, is there any way that the project costs, like if someone spends X amount on a project and then you just amortize it over three or four years and, and, and in your mind can call, call it SaaS, is there ever going to be a big enough amount there? Or do you think you've got to get the customer in this pattern of buying software in a traditional way? We have been actually successful at getting the customer to buy in that way. It's just that they, what they do is they push that reoccurring amount smaller as they prefer to pay more upfront. So with us trying to get them to shift that over time, like we're comfortable with less upfront and with more being in the reoccurring. Again, like our contract sizes are still so big that it's okay for now. But I think the stickiness will help us to be able to push that over time. Yeah. So, the, so to Gil's point, it, it, it may not matter initially. Like, just yep, yep. Uh, the, the yeah, the, the overall deal sizes are still big enough, even if they're not buying in a way that DCs understand. Who cares? Yes. So, sorry. So I do have one more question. So, our focus has been on very large enterprise customer acquisition and, and securing partners to help with distribution into those types of customers. Um, I guess, yeah. Like, any other. There are like other segments of the markets with like smaller companies and stuff. Do you think we should be targeting those now, later? What are your thoughts on on starting to wrap those other customers into the fold? So this is again where if you ask a lot of people at Flexport, they would tell they would say that Ben's an idiot on this topic. We caused ourselves a lot of pain, but we were always multi-segment from the early days. We were consistently we started at the bottom, but we even as we got into larger deal sizes we were pretty insistent that we continue to grow our SMB customer base. It it is very stressful living and dying by every enterprise deal. If if making or missing your number is dependent on one or two deals closing on time or closing to the, with the magnitude you're expecting, it's a tough way to get enough sleep. And at least we found that 
we were able to run an outbound process against our larger accounts where it was like, okay, whatever you're spending on CAC, it's okay. These deals are large enough. Go outbound to them, go invest a multi, a multi-agent sales strategy and getting them into the Flex4 ecosystem, basically at any cost. And at the bottom of our market, we had more inbound. Our brand started actually generating a decent number of folks who were raising their hands saying, hey, Flex4, we're interested in, in learning more about you. Obviously, we were riding the tailwind of, of Amazon e-commerce seller growth. We, we, we serve SMB, um, mid-market, and, and global key accounts, enterprise customers at Flexport. SMB has always been about 25% of the gross, and it's always been about 50% of the net. Because these, these customers, just on a per-transaction basis, although they are a little bit higher cost to serve, they tend to be a little bit higher margin because they don't have the incredible buying power of, we also serve some of the biggest companies in the world who just who buy on a very different scale. We've always had that as part of our, of our customer composition. I think it's given us a lot of confidence to go up market because we knew even if we stumbled, even if the deals took longer than we were expecting, we had that buffer. And they're just, they're wonderful promoters of the brand. Like there's no one more enthusiastic about Flexport than one of our SMBs who like, we are their partner. They see Flexport as an extension of their business. Whereas like our really giant customers, some of them love us, but they're a 50,000 person operation. If they got a new vendor tomorrow, I don't think there are any features we shed. Whereas at, at in our in our for our smaller brands where we have these really close relationships with individuals, they'll go to the end of the earth to promote you. So yeah, I, it, it, at least in our case, it gave us a lot of confidence having this more diverse customer mix. But I, I know for you, like your deal sizes are so big, you've had so much success up market, it may be hard to justify resourcing down market. And that was the thing. Like our our engineering team was always massively frustrated with our sales organization that we didn't focus more. It was it's very hard to build for the three segments of Flexport. They all want to buy in different ways. They all want to be invoiced in different ways. They care about different data points. We made our product journey dramatically more difficult by following the advice that I just described. Yes. And I think Adam, our CRO, <laughs> also likes that advice. So yeah, we might end up in the same same bucket eventually. Let's go to Jonathan next. Cool. First off, thanks so much for the help. Great to have you. Yeah, so I think our what I kind of would love to suck a little bit of is probably around focus. So our tool enables or really empowers non-technical people to build things, all kinds of things. Uh, you can make this, you can make that. There's a lot of different UI components in the world. I think the promise of no code is that you can do pretty much anything, which isn't really true. And so I think one um, challenge that we have is that particularly in a POC, people get really excited about starting to do one thing and then they just expand from there. Hey, this is great for checklists. Oh my God, I can't wait to have an announcement bar. And then they kind of get tripped over themselves. There's still a learning curve to building a, like a React component or an HTML component. How do you contain folks in a POC while still getting them excited about the promise of being able to do a lot of the work that developers used to do? So start with that. Oh, that's super interesting. By the way, your demo is amazing. Help me understand more about why, like, who, help me understand like, what's going on in a POC, what has been promised internally? Like in, in general, a POC has an if-then statement. It's if we accomplish this in the POC, then we are going to buy, can do for X amount of money. Yes. What is the if in, the, in this statement generally? Yeah, so I think you're touching on kind of the core, our core challenge, which really, which is great. So because we have this range of templates that can come in by, most of our stuff is inbound, actually. We have a lot of inbound leads. That's often someone who likes a new product launch template or they want a customer onboarding dashboard. And it's kind of sexy, if I'm being honest. It's like fun to start to add stuff into your app. Yeah. But it's not necessarily tied to like a real business need. Oh, I my OKR is that we're going to have, we need to improve churn with our self-serve segment. And so I think a lot of what we need to do early on in the process is make it feel really easy, but also get really sharp around what is this actually, what are we actually here to do? So I think that's been one of our challenges, I'll say. Yeah. 
it, it's super interesting. And, and, and remind me again, so it's usually a PM or a growth PM, you said? Uh, yeah. So, uh, okay. So the, the way it actually works is that when people come into our site, uh, it's almost always a marketer. They're the people who love new tech. They want to try it out. They're actually probably not. And they can't code. Them. And they can't code. That's very important. And they're used to buying software. Another thing. Um, looking for tools. But often the actual people who really matter here is they need the approval of someone in product or an engineering to say, hey, actually, I bless this. Like, this makes sense. It's a problem I don't want to have to deal with anymore. Um, so that's really our core, I'd say, that ends up being our core buyer, especially for the work that's done in the actual app by that. So, Yeah, uh, amazing. I, so I, I buy them an investor in a company used to be called Userly. Now it's called Sprig. I think they're the, the future of surveys, understanding your customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a similar situation where they have one buyer who wants to bring in the product, which is generally uh, a growth leader or a user researcher uh, that like totally understands and sees the value of running these in, in product surveys. On the other hand, they have this incredible task of convincing a product organization, hey, we've got to right. integrate this new thing. It's going to be all over our app, all over the site. Uh, it's not going to break anything. And so you, it's like very similar to yours where you've got one person who's super excited and like totally understands, I need this. Like it's in your, it's in your work. It's very sexy. Right. We're going to make our app better instantly. Uh, but then you've got this other organization that's got to get excited about it too. Uh, mm. and, I, and, and I think like it's worth figuring out what the exact motion is to, to make that happen repeatedly and to ask a ton of questions of that gatekeeper organization, in your case, it's the, the product org, of like, mm-hmm. if, if you aren't excited about us, why? Um, are you excited about doing this work these marketers want to do? My dream situation here, if I were your head of sales, would be I want our brand to be Engineers should focus on real work. Mm-hmm. Mar- mar- marketers will obviously need and, and have every right to update the, the website, the app, whatever it may be with all these cool things that you're describing. Let's make sure everybody can do their jobs. Like, let's give the marketers the tools to be fully empowered without distracting the product organization, building this big, complicated stuff that's going to move this forward in a more material way. And if like, if you're able to have that conversation super openly, that's the, that's the other thing in these multi-party sales. Like, you've got to just talk about it. Right. And to talk about it with your with the person who's inbounded and say, hey, I know we're not going to get this done unless the product organization's excited. And when you do with the product organization, like I at least my instinct is hit it on the head. Just say, look, I know you're super busy. I know you probably don't care about modifying this particular landing page, but this team really does. And like, mm-hmm. look how easy we make it. You have this amazing demo. What do I have to what do I have to show you that we're not going to break, that we're not going to be a security risk? Like, give me your checklist. That you can say, okay, marketing team, if you're excited about this, we're good with it. And just have it all be like crazy explicit. I think it's like whenever there's these human things involved of like who owns what and who's more dominant in an organization, things get super weird, super fast. And the more we can just be like, all right, everybody, here's our situation. Here's what you care about. Here's what you care about. Here's what I care about. How do we get this done together? I think it's going to, I think in general, I've seen it work better. And like Ryan from Formula User Leap, now Sprig. I think it's done like a spectacular job of this. It's one of the reasons they've grown as fast as they have uh, of just getting all these parties to understand why it's valuable, why it's got a security risk. Okay. Like in his case, they actually have like pretty hardcore, like bullet by bullet action plans to go live mm-hmm. just to make sure all the parts of the company understand what's happening and why it's, why it's safe, why it's on a security risk. And so like, I, I love how explicit he's been. I, I've learned a lot from it. Yeah, and I think that perception of risk is actually super important because I think our key differentiation is that we're not just trying to be something that pops up on top of the screen. 
We're actually trying to be the product itself to be embedded into the experience. So it looks and feels native to the user, uh, which is a better user experience. I think we're all kind of maybe sick of um, pop-ups. That's really am since like 2001. But we're using them a I lot. Used to, I used to sell pop-up ads. So be, I, 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 I paid for my wedding with pop-up ads. So let's, I mean, they're great. They draw attention. They're great for the business owner often. But when you're, we're trying to make an engaging SaaS application, you often really want to invest in the actual product experience, which means actually improving the actual page. And that's the part that we can help with if you're okay with a third party doing that. And so that thing, that's been a really important part. And why we invest so much in security early on, all that kind of good stuff that if we go down, what happens? Nothing things like that. But it definitely creates a little bit of tension between our brand promise. Hey, this is so easy. Anyone could do this. And oh, but what if something goes wrong? Right? Yeah, um, totally. So, yeah. Really cool. Yeah. We'd love to talk to the, to the CEO as well. Sounds like a good network. One thing that we've learned is that we have to actually bring in those stakeholders as early as possible into that conversation because we can have a champion who will say anything and be the person for us. But actually, they it's really a multi-stakeholder sales point earlier. It's really a, an organizational product level decision. Any recommendations for kind of making sure that that process and that meeting goes well, pulling more people into that conversation? Yeah, in general, we like to ask a lot of questions and we like to mm -hmm. ask, we like to ask, how does it work? Like, how good is your organization at change? The more you are willing to ask before the meeting happens. And yeah. I feel like once you're in the meeting, the more candid you're able to get everyone to be the better the next steps are going to be. In the early days of Plexport, we had so many meetings where we brought, we where our champion brought us into an approving stakeholder. It was super pleasant. There's a wonderful phrase that I'm like sort of hesitating to use because it's inappropriate. The phrase is great fucking, okay? We're all adults here. Um, oh. it's, it's when your stakeholder sits in the room, they smile big at you, <laughs> they tell you, oh, and they do this. It looks great. Yeah, and they exactly, <laughs> they smile and nod real big. And then oh, you yeah. never hear from them again. You want to avoid that at all costs. And I, I think it, what we found is the more directly we could propose blockers and we could say, hey, mm -hmm. is this a blocker for you? Uh, right. Is this going to be a problem for you? And like, rather than shy away from things that we knew that an approver might have as a concern, like in your case, it sounds like security is going to be the, it's going to be the primary, which is in a lot of cases where you're integrating with the product, that's the case. Just hit it on the head and like really like beat the dead horse just over and over again. Okay, so yeah. explicitly, what would it take for you to feel excited about this? Okay, great. What are our deliverables then to make sure your team understands X, Y, and Z? And like, mm -hmm. even if you feel like you're being overly pedantic, uh, like obsessive about details, the customer will come away going, well, I wasn't able to just slough them off with a smile. I have to at least seriously engage. And in your worst case, you get a hard blocker where they say, okay, you know what? I think this is insurmountable. I don't think you're going to be able to prove to our CISO that you're secure by this standard. Okay, great. Then you've got a tangible objective coming out of the meeting. The nightmare is you and your champion both leave the meeting as thinking you got something done. And then the approver just sort of goes off into the ether. Right, right. And actually, so there's another, I think, really important part of this, which is that we shift power in an organization. So traditionally, something that has been gated, the front end, now could be ungated to, to another team, right? You can give it to design. You can give the power of changing the CTA to marketing. You can let product managers now update the product launch copy or images or even like full design components. And so I think there's like a little bit of natural tension, which I think we're probably enabling. That's what we want to do. We want to give away these Legos, right? Or take them away from engineering. But I think it does create this. Sometimes things can be left unsaid, I guess, in those meetings. If you have someone on your team that's like good at getting people to say the unsaid thing, 
Uh, that's the meeting to bring them to. <laughs> yep. Yep. Really cool. I have a little bit of a different tech actually I was curious about, which is, so we also serve really different accounts in terms of um, ACV for us, right? We've got some accounts that are, re- are really large. You're building these really amazing dynamic dashboards that pull in customer data. You know, it's a really, really cool experience. We have other folks who just sign up online, grab an announcement bar from a template and chuck it into a website in five minutes, right? And that's probably better for a freemium offering. And then we also have like obviously an enterprise plan that kind of scales with usage. How do I not cannibalize the, I guess, our enterprise clients with the kind of the self-serve pay-as-you-go type offering that we have posted online? So as you probably figured out by now, I am very much of the Picasso mindset, that good artist borrow, great artist field. Yeah. In this case, like let's steal from Amplitude. Amplitude runs an amazing playbook yep. on this front where they've designed their offering such that if you're if you're what they consider to be a real account, you almost can't help but trigger it. Like even right. if you right. sign right. up for premium, even if you try to only deploy Amplitude in a really yep. limited way, if yep. you're someone they consider to be a real company that they're targeting for real spend, like you're gonna automatically trigger into a real spend category. Yeah, you're going to get a call from a sales rep that says, hey, you've now done this many events. Let's right. talk about the right enterprise plan. Right. Uh, and it's like, it goes from a couple thousand a year to a hundred thousand a year really fast that my memory serves. And it's designed in such a way that you almost don't realize how many events you're going to be generating. Like, I don't, I don't think it's duplicitous at all. I don't think they're being deceptive at all. But they've designed in such a way that if you're a small company with like a limited number of users and therefore like a limited number of commercial tra- traction, uh, mm-hmm. or a limited amount of commercial traction, you're going to be fine with their free or their limited offering. The moment you're a big company that can afford their level of spend they're targeting, you just like, it ticks over. Uh, and it, right. there's, there's no one size fits all way to design this. But I, I do think like, I like the way they made it so binary where it's like, you're either in this free or super low spend tier, or you're spending close to 100K. And they're not super worried about the folks in the middle because they just want to make sure they're converting 100% of the folks that could spend 100K a year plus. And it, it, it works It works really well in their case. If I were you, I would dive into their exact pricing plan and see where it is today. What have you experimented with? Yeah, we, we basically have done a little mix of many things. We're actually launching our free plan as of today. So that's exciting timing. But yeah, we've thought about like, what is the thing that, that creates more value the more you use of it? Is it the number of people who can create and edit content? Is it the number of people who interact with that content? Is it just the number of events that are being tracked, similar to Amplitude? And I think for us, it's really how many end users you have. How many folks are actually like, poking at the thing and could be accessing content. So that's what we're using as our primary usage metric. Yeah. And then also like it, it really makes a difference how big the business is. If it's my website and I want to improve it, like I'm, my spend category is not going to be very high. But if I'm a SaaS application or like a, a larger mid-market account and I have this really important customer needs to have this component and this other customer needs this other component, that's a really different type of um, sale, right? With really different ROI. So yeah. You said you were B2B. So then are you, when you say user count, are you talking about B2B users or is it B2B to C? Are you talking about the end user count of a consumer business and you're selling into that business? Or are you talking about like the user count of a SaaS business? Oh yeah, great question. We're probably working more now with the B2B. So you have a certain number of customers and, they, and they're interacting with it today. Yeah. Um, I think there's actually probably a great business around the B2B to C one as well, but we can talk about that later. If, if you crack it, I'll be very interested to learn from you because we've always struggled. We've always struggled charging in I, both at Plexport and other companies mm-hmm. I've worked on in charging by user in B2B. 
because we just have like such a strong incentive to get as many users as possible on the platform. And I, I see Zangier going, yes, yes. But yeah, like that, that's always been our, our tension is like, it's tempting where you know how many people are using your product or you know how many people are being exposed to the product. It's tempting to want to charge by, by that metric. But in B2B where like the, the user counts are pretty limited, like it's not like an amplitude where you're dealing with 10 million users generating 100 million right. monthly events where it, 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 it becomes B2C. In B2B, I, I'll be very curious if you're able to crack it charging by user or if you end up char- if you end up exercising something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll have to stay tuned, I guess, on that one. All right. Let's go over to Zenia for our last founder for the sales clinic. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Anne. My first question is actually a follow-up both for Jonathan's question on breaking into the enterprise space. That is a big challenge for us. We have, just to, for a bit of context, we have more than a thousand customers. So the ACV is, you know, we have small businesses, freelancers paying 50, 100 bucks a month to use the tool and collaborate, manage, you know, a couple of brands maybe on the platform. And then we have a bit more mid-market, maybe, you know, being up to a thousand a month and, and so on. But like beyond that, that is proving itself to be very difficult, not just finding those customers, which for various reasons, it's super hard to target them to really understand if they have the challenges that we're looking to solve, but also positioning. They are often locked in in, in contracts that are not direct competitors of ours, but overlap specifically on the publishing side, like maybe Hootsuite, Sprinkler, those type of tools that are like big, big, big giants, uh, Salesforce with their social studio and content suits, uh, Oracle sometimes. So it's really hard with the positioning, but also when we bump into those, justifying the price difference, like that is (laughs) extremely, like it's a big, big difference. And we can't, sometimes it works, support, procurement process, onboarding. (laughs) Jonathan is smiling. (laughs) The follow-up question is so important. What an important tactic. Yeah, but then justifying the actual price because the, the number of users might be the same, but the value they're getting is tremendously different. So how do you navigate all of this? What are the quantifiable things associated with your platform? Is it social spend the biggest one or are there other big numbers associated with, what, with what's going to go inside of Planable? Yeah, the amount, the volume of content they produce on social. So the number of pages, maybe the importance they give to social that can be quantified by the, how big their page is, the following on their social accounts, and then the users. And that's actually, I was uh, smiling earlier because we're changing our pricing model into charging by user. Did you explore at all charging by the number of DAUs or MAUs that were interacting with the content versus the people inside of the organizations? Or was it just hard to give it to people to pay on that, on that structure? Yeah, super hard. Very unusual in our industry. Because the the variety of industries is so, so, so big. Like we might have consumer products that have huge following and the value is big for them, but then we might have someone uh, that is software and the value is still big for them, but the following on social, the users that are going to consume the content is much smaller. So we might be shooting ourselves a bit in the foot with this one. Got it. Okay. And as far as like, is is there, without disclosing anything too confidential from Bright Dairy, <laughs> Is there a single customer right now that is significantly larger than the rest? And like, are there any attributes about them or the sale that are interesting? There's a couple of them, a handful of them. Most of them agencies, which, which isn't necessarily like the target because it's a no-brainer. Agencies need to collaborate with their clients to show the work they're preparing for their clients. So that one is easy. And most of them have, have come from inbound. 
like our inbound, it's a machine, it works. It's my next question is about the outbound, by the way. So <laughs> we'll go there as well. Uh, but the other you're, one, you're, like, you're very blessed if inbound is working. The, the, yeah. Shining on you. <laughs> yeah, right. But outbound is painful. I have no idea how other people are doing it. So we'll talk about that. But on the other side, uh, on the big customers, the ones that are not agencies, what we see is that they have multiple regions. So they're maybe a big brand that does social and content in different regions across the world. And in, they have multiple teams in those regions. And that's where we can drive a lot of value. Okay, very interesting. All right, on the outbound front, the number one thing to figure out with outbound is the list. And it sounds like you've already started doing a lot of the work there of like, who yeah. are our actual targets? What do they look like? And how can we build a list that will continue to scale as we scale the outbound program? How big is your target list today? It's huge. And that's a, that's actually a different question. Should you go like mass or should you go like super hyper personalized one email at a time? So I, if you're assuming your customer values support it and like not every business supports outbound, but given, given that you're international and I think you could build a pretty low cost SDR team outside of the US somewhere. In general, I like the idea of being super manual. Like we, we used to onboard SDRs and tell them, look, if this was an automated function, like if we wanted you to automate this, it would be marketing. We would, we would, we'd write some copy, let it run. And, if, and so please don't do that. Like in, in a lot of my early sales jobs where I, where I was in IC, I would see a lot of really smart people try to automate their job where they would say, okay, rather than doing manual outreach to these companies, I'm going to set up a drip campaign. Maybe when someone responds, then I'll do something manual. What we found is those people, oh, and I've seen this over a lot of companies, those people have a very low success rate, despite in most cases being very smart people. Like if you're smart enough to set up automation, you're a really smart person. And they almost all failed at outbound sales roles, which was like a super fascinating thing for me to see. And I think the reason they failed is that like, as an SDR or someone who's doing outbound, you are trying to manufacture human connection. You're trying to manufacture a person actually taking time from their reality to focus on your reality. And the chances of you doing that without being massively creative seems pretty low. And so we give our SDRs a list of 100. That list of 100 is pretty fixed. We have done the work ourselves to make sure it's a great list. Like we, we call it the gold list. We want to impress upon people that once something makes it onto our outbound list, we know it, it fits all the attributes of a great Flexport customer. And that's really up to us as business leaders to do for the outbound team. It's, it's too much for them to have to parse a crazy list of junk and figure out who's going to be a good fit and who's not. Like you're just, it's not the right use of their time. Like that's our job as leaders to do. We give them a list of a hundred. The best SDRs at Flexport consistently will throw out 50 of the hundred we give them. And I don't literally mean throw them out, but I mean the vast majority of their focus, they will go, okay, Flexport, you've already done a pretty good job giving me a target list of a hundred. I am going to be smarter than you because I have the time to do it. And I'm going to narrow this down to the 30 or 50 accounts that I think are a really perfect fit, where they have a LinkedIn, where they have a fire that looks like they're a great persona fit for Flexport, whatever it may be. And I am going to do whatever it takes on earth to activate that account. And the, and the way we sort of try to make that culturally part of the mindset is the only way to get a new lead on your list is to either convert it to an opportunity, which means you've set a meeting for a sales rep to talk to them and learn about their business, or you market as failed. Like saying, I can't, I, there's nothing on earth I can do to activate this. I'm sorry, it's a failure. And the reason we, we set it up this way is for the first two years of Flexport, 
No one marked any leads as not one. We just had this enormous list. Every SDR ended up having thousands of leads because they all said, oh no, I'm going to get back and I'm going to work them to activate at some point. And then our whole database was locked up in, in, in limbo. Um, so what we found was we wanted there to be this huge incentive to either activate things or mark them as not able to be activated. And so the only way you get a new lead in your list of 100 is to do one of those two things, the SDR Flexport. And we think of the rest of our marketing as being supportive of those folks. Like you are the, if you were an SDR, you are, you are the infantry, like you were out on the front lines, you were doing one of the hardest jobs in the company. Our job as a marketing organization is to give you all the ammunition and air coverage. So that's, hey, rather than having to convince a customer to talk to a sales rep, tell them we have some industry expert that's going to show up for a webinar. That's a low, that's lower hanging fruit. Or hey, one of our executives is hosting a dinner in your area. Make sure the SDRs know about it so they can send that as the outbound. And all of marketing becomes, yeah, some of it will generate inbound, but in general, we think of marketing, like, you know, by the way, Flexport, we're 90% outbound in terms of where a dollar is generated. Um, We think of, yeah, we, we think of marketing as being supportive of SDR. And if it happens to generate inbound, that's wonderful. We're super, we're super grateful for it. But we really want these people who, who are carrying these 12 opportunity a month quotas in most cases to feel well-armed and well-supported. Well, so that's completely the other way around <laughs> on our end. Marketing is generating revenue. It's responsible for 18, 80, at least, percent of our revenue at outbound if we get lucky. But it's true that we've only now started dabbling with ABM, account-based like very personalized short lists of, of accounts that, that we go after. Is there any like new or strategies that you've seen working very well for SDRs to get opportunities in the door besides collaborating so closely with the, with the marketing? So making sure they understand it's a manual job, giving mm-hmm. as much firepower as you can. So a lot of what your marketing team is generating now, I'm sure is great content for these SDRs to use. They just got to mm-hmm. know what it is, where to find it how to use it, what customers it's salient to. Um, like, it's not like the work you're doing won't be useful for arming these SDRs. It is. And they just need to know how to access it and how to use it. As far as actual tactics, there's basically two, there's two kinds of companies or two kinds of, like, really, there's two kinds of ideal customers. There's some companies get lucky, like in Flexport, we are very fortunate that our customer, they have to buy this service. Like our, our customer in many cases, it is their job to buy and manage logistics service. Like they have a $20 million a year budget. Their job is to manage that $20 million to spend, make sure their company is well served. Uh, therefore, like they're kind of always in a buying cycle and it doesn't seem at all strange or weird for them to get an, an outbound from us saying, hey, we know you have a bid coming up next year. We'd love to talk to you about it. So that's one way the Flexport was blessed that they made outbound easier. Another blessing is if your stakeholder is willing to talk on the phone, which a lot of technical buyers are not. Like in the case, of, I think Vicky may have better luck on the phone than Jonathan or Zenia, um, yeah. where like, you know, somebody's working in a control room, like they're probably doing a lot of their job on the phone. Like it's not unusual for them to be taking phone calls. Whereas if someone's working in social media planning, like getting an unsolicited phone call is bizarre. Like you would just be like, yeah, totally out of their workflow, out of the door. Uh, it's like when our industry, want- they still have the phone on the desk. Even oh then. my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, we, we all have to be honest with ourselves about like, does our stakeholder have a hard line? Does our stakeholder answer their cell phone? Is our stakeholder going to be offended? Like Jonathan, if, if you, I you, you know this already. If you try to cold call ahead of product, you will get chewed out. Well, let's say what number am I going to call? By the yeah. same token though, 
I think like we have to figure out what our audience responds to. And in the case of these technical buyers, I think they respond to high signal. They respond to social proof. They respond to their peers they respect endorsing the product. Like they just respond to different things than someone who's willing to pick up the phone and just say, yeah, my job is to buy this service or my job is to run this giant asset. Of course, I'll talk to you about running it better. Uh, like if, if your buyer is not in that mindset, I think it becomes much more a social signaling game of showing your buyer, hey, every one of your peers in your peer group is doing this versus just the direct outbound. It's amazing. Thanks a lot, Ben. Yep. Thank you so much. That was a great sales clinic. So we'll bring on Tal from Fixify. He had a question for you, Ben. Hey, Ben. Nice seeing you again. Uh, we met before. I'm sure you remember. Of course. So just uh, for everyone, a short intro. I'm Tal, one of the founders at Fixify. Uh, Fixify is actually an AI platform for uh, automating supply chain reconciliations. Actually, Ben talked about it earlier about supply chain teams uh, wanting to see things on a granular level, wanting to have those invoices uh, really uh, specified what the services and what happened in the supply chain. But eventually at scale, it becomes too much data to reconcile. Today, it's usually done manually. And uh, this is the problem, and, and cost a lot of money, and this is the problem that we solve. What I wanted to ask you, first of all, thank you very much. I have a question uh, regarding our sales process right now. Our sales process is, we call it the Spotlight Challenge. We receive data from customers, and we show immediate ROI in, in just a few days. And it's very, very focused on showing that clear savings, that clear ROI, and but also from gathering all that granular data all from different touch points from the supply chain, we're able to have a, let's say, not immediate value, that value that will come up on the long term that we cannot provide immediately that, for example, collaborating with other stakeholders in the organization, finance, procurement, uh, showing them that and uh, transferring that uh, data to them and working on a more strategic level. Uh, I know that Flex for business like Flexport also supply chains are very strategic and also showing the value of Flexport immediately is something that is a little bit hard. I wanted to ask how you guys tackled the presenting not immediate long wave value. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think in general, our sale has two key components. One is the initial wow factor, which is generally you know, corresponds to the demo. And then we generally have a pilot which is built around an if-then statement. And so like in general, what the context here is our customer buys on an annual buying cycle. If you're a great VP of operations, VP of logistics, whatever it may be, you run a tight process every spring where you make a bunch of vendors sing for their supper. And effectively, Flexport's job is to make sure that we are the front runner going into that cycle. So like our sale is really two sales. It's first, we've got to get them excited enough to run a trial for us in advance of that bid. Then we've got to win the bid. I think what you're describing is sort of similar where you've got to get them short-term excited and then you've got yeah. to prove more enduring value. We sort of, 
looked that challenge in the face and we said, look, the only way that we're going to be the front runner going into that annual bid is if we run a trial. If that trial is big enough, they can experience flex for it at the single source of truth. Or in your case, if I think if the data set is big enough, they actually believe that it's salient or, or relevant to their overall financial operation. Like just design the sale. In our case, we designed the sale so that it was discovery. We teased the demo and say, hey, I'm so interested in about your business. I think you're really going to like what we show you next time. Next call, we do the demo is where everybody really gets wowed. That hopefully has bought us enough credibility that we can say, look, what do we have to prove to you? And like, we're very, we're very explicit to Plexport. Like, we want to know, do you want to see our trade at the times? Do you want to see cost savings? Do you want to see our team's response time on messages? Like, tell us exactly what we have to prove to you in the course of a trial. Tell us exactly how big a trial we can do that's going to be, that's going to actually feel material. Uh, like, we want to ask our customer everything possible to your point for like, if, if we're going to prove long-term strategic value, it's almost impossible to do without the customer telling us how to do it. And so a lot of our sale is built around, okay, let's earn enough credibility up front with the demo to earn that trial. And then let's earn the sale in the course of the trial. And it's like, if you try to prove too much up front, you'll never get the opportunity. And if you don't look at the opportunity in the face and say, look, I understand I have a lot to prove to you to get all your spend here, uh, you probably won't ever grow the full share wallet. And so we just sort of define those two phases of the cycle pretty tightly. Thank you. Thank you very much. That, that really answered that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Awesome, Ben. Thank you. I think that that concept of designing the sale is, is really key. I know we're sort of running late on time. We have one audience submitted question that I would love to ask you because it's, it's, I think it's really good. I'll, I'll ask it anonymously. I, I know who it is, but I'll ask anonymously. So it's from a CEO of a really early stage company. And he's basically asking the following. We are an eight person team with zero sales experience pre-revenue and plan to go to market with two strategies simultaneously, self-service SaaS and also enterprise, you know, talk to us, right? And I think, you know, long run, that is how the business is going to play out, right? And his question is, are we crazy to attempt this with no enterprise sales experience? Have you seen this before? If so, what's going to trip us up? Our main goal is to prove that the enterprise will pay us something, not necessarily they will pay us huge amounts immediately or, or like, how are we supposed to do this, right? And I, I will add that I often find myself giving this advice. I mean, I gave it to a different founder this morning of like, yeah, prove that you have some self-service funnel that converts at high numbers and prove that just one person will pay you a ton of money. And, yep. and then you've planted a flag on both hills and then VCs think you're super valuable and you've also proven a bunch of stuff that's pretty important, right? At the same time, that poses a ton of operational challenges to early, early stage team. A, good strategy, bad strategy, and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, it, if, you're, if you have the intellectual bandwidth to pull it off, God bless you. To your point, I, the, the way I thought of it, I think that makes it a little less daunting is just like a series of experiments where like, it's less that we have to have these two perfect strategies, one for inbound, one for outbound, but more like, what are all the things we're curious about that are going to work to acquire customers? Like some of them are going to be more inboundy. Some of them are going to be more outboundy. Some of them are going to be in the, in the middle. And how do they, how can we run as many of them in parallel as possible so that we feel like we're in control of our destiny? And it, and it's like, you feel like you actually have the capacity to add more experiments in parallel, do it. But if at some point you're like, you know what? The machine is breaking. I don't have any more cycles. We've got to stop. Okay, stop running to experiment. That, that's sort of, I think, how, how we thought of it, but with our core experiment really being outbound. And the reason for that is, unless you've built something technically really fascinating or that you figured out, to borrow a phrase from Kevin Kwok, unless you've really figured out an inbound growth loop that feels durable and reliable, it just is a scary way to run the business, not having outbound be your 
your focus, at least as an early stage company, that if you think enterprise is going to be a part of what you're doing. So my bias would probably be focus most of your cycles on trying to generate those outbound or on generating that one or two enterprise logos. And if you're successful doing that, you'll probably accidentally get some of the inbound smaller stuff to close. Whereas if you don't really focus deliberately on the enterprise outbound, it's never going to happen. You might get lucky and the inbound will have it on its own as you start building. You'll never get lucky and have the outbound have it on its own. That, that, that's yep. my summary. And that's like, and that's exactly what happened to us. Is we were like super aggressive with the early outbound. And then from like the first like press release, we had like aggressive inbound. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, it's helpful because you like your press release had stuff in it. It had like yeah. logos and come. Yeah. Yeah. So of course it generated more inbound than just, hey, we've launched this cool thing. My name's Vicky. Right. Right. And I would, I would sort of add to that, that like, you know, this is the sales clinic. So we're talking about sales, but not every experiment. I, I like your framework of these are experiments, but not every experiment is a sales experiment. In other words, you can be perfecting an outbound sales funnel, right? And just have one customer you're talking to and there you're experimenting on pricing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got some kind of a repeatable outbound enterprise sales operation. It just means you're getting a customer to validate a thesis you have about, hey, someone's going to pay me a lot of money for this, right? Once that happens, then you can go and figure out how to maybe repeat that or scale it or not. But it's a useful data point to have that may not be tied to sales. And that's something I think a lot of founders sort of forget is like, yeah, they do have to build an organization that does something, but they as the CEO have the license to go off and do something else, like a commando, right? The rest of the army is doing something and I'm going to go off and do some other operation, which proves a point. And as you say, Ben, that takes intellectual horsepower to, to keep it separated. But when you come back with that data point, you can go back to your people and say, hey, look, I was able to get, you know, a huge price point for this. You know, maybe we should raise prices. <laughs> awesome point. All right, well, folks, it was really wonderful spending time with you. My, my friend, Hirsch, who I work with Flexport, talks a lot about how no matter what you think of a founder, you've got to respect the fearlessness that it takes to like to do what you do, like to start a new company, to create a thing from nothing, to go like convince people to spend their lives on it. Uh, and like my role is much easier. Like I, I follow people like you into battle. I help figure out what the sales machine should look like. Uh, and in many ways, like my job is a lot easier. So I can't tell you how much I respect you. Thank you for spending the time with me here. Thank you so much, Ben. Bye, everyone. Bye.